We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. We need to take into account that fish is the only food product we still massively capture out of wild, so we need to take care. And one of the things of taking care is that we, we, we should lower the pressure on our oceans, and one of the solu- solutions, one of the ways to go is to preserve fish. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hazel. On today's episode, I'm talking to longtime chef and sustainable seafood advocate Bart Van Olfen. Bart has written many cookbooks, and he's the founder of Sea Tales, a company that makes sustainable tin fish. We talked about why tin fish is having such a moment right now, how to shop responsibly for seafood, and about his newest book, Veggies and Fish. Later on the show, I catch up with Deepak Chopra about mindful holiday eating and why the self-care industrial complex might not be such a bad thing. But first, here's my conversation with Bart. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Bart. Well, thank you for having me. Your new cookbook is Veggies and Fish. Why Veggies and Fish? Well... Um, so I started it basically writing cookbooks uh, in 2009. So what I actually did, so I, I came out of gastronomy. So I worked in Paris in the 90s in the Michelin-starred restaurants. And so um, I started, because I've, well, more or less in Paris, I fell in love with seafood and fish. I found it such a great thing. So I started to travel in 2009 around the globe to fish, cook, and live together with all kinds of fishing communities. And um, so from then on, I wrote like nine cookbooks where fish was always the main topic. And then suddenly I thought, maybe what what would happen if we would turn it around? And this reminded me on my work when I was in in Luca Carton, which was in Paris, three-star Michelin. It was always the the first base of the recipe was always the protein, right? So it's the meat or or, or the fish, and then you thought of, of a wonderful wonderful sauce with it, and then. At the very end, you thought, okay, what I'm going to serve with it uh, as a veggie. So I think in this time where people are more thinking about the future and sustainability and eating more plants, I thought, what if I would turn it around and create like vegetable dishes and in addition to it, this lovely piece of fish, less in quantity, but the same flavor. It's interesting how much that template has changed since the 90s of the starch, the vegetable, the protein. And I think it's sort of shifted beyond just fish cooking. It's really with like so many different types of meals. We're not just doing a protein, a starch and a vegetable anymore. No, true. And I think also it's I think what we need to take into account is that because of, well, um, the global communications we have, the different cuisines entering different cities. Uh, so it's more and more, you get more inspired by foreign cuisines uh, where often, yeah, vegetables play a great role, a big role. So it's it's this era where 
people become more aware of the fact that that we need to eat healthy, but they will be also me, be more inspired because of all these well influences of around the globe. I don't know what your experience is living in Amsterdam, but at least in New York, I've noticed a lot of people I know during the pandemic started buying and cooking a lot more seafood at home and sort of experimenting with types of seafood that they hadn't cooked at home before, that they were used to eating out at a restaurant. Is that a shift that you've noticed? People buying, you know, yeah, well, same story squid in, or lobster. No, true. Same story in, in, in the Netherlands. So I think people saved money because they... Uh, they couldn't go out, so with uh, so suddenly they and also of course they had more more time to to spend to to cook. Uh, uh, um, they uh, they choose for well more experimental kind of uh, of cooking. So what we've seen so far in the Netherlands is that uh, for example also canned fish was a, becoming a big big thing. People suddenly realized that if you buy like a good selection of tinned fish, you could create some fantastic dishes and. You can keep it easily in your pantry and uh, easy to cook with. So, no, it's true. So, uh, many more species, maybe also you would more or less eat in restaurants instead of cooking at home. Well, this really changed into, well, let's give it a try. Definitely. You've also written two books about canned fish. Yeah. You're also the founder of a canned fish company called Sea Tales. I've tried some of your beautiful tuna and anchovies. What do you like about canned fish in particular? Well, I think canned fish. So, so what? It's all. It it all starts from uh, the philosophy that we need to act sustainably towards uh, our oceans. Uh, we need to take into account that fish is the only food product we still massively capture out of wild. So we need to take care. And one of the things of taking care is that we, we, we should lower the pressure on our oceans and one of the solu- our solutions, one of the ways to go is to preserve fish. And fresh fish is a great thing, especially when you live on the coast but, um, and, and when it's in season. But canned fish or frozen fish is a great thing to, especially with the new techniques for frozen fish, it's a great thing to consume too, and 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 I got always this secondary feeling with with canned fish until I was well traveling and visiting uh, Spain and Portugal and France, where it's more like a delicacy. Um, yeah, so I got that moment really inspired. It's interesting that you bring up the uh, freezing technologies that are now being used to preserve fish because. I think for such a long time, there was a little bit of a stigma around frozen fish. Yeah. You'll go to a grocery store or a fish market, and it will be labeled, like, never frozen or previously frozen. Um, So it's—I think a lot of people don't realize that actually previously frozen fish can be really good quality, and it can be a way of preserving freshness really quick after it's caught. Exactly. That that's the main thing, and and you really should look out for once frozen products. So what often happens around the globe is that fish is being caught in a certain area. Um, so the whole fish will, will be uh, is frozen then, and it will be shipped to another location, often China or Asia, where it's defrosted, where it's filleted, and then frozen again. So then the quality is really decreasing. Um, but the once frozen product with the new techniques where it goes really quick and exactly what you're saying, so straight after catch, freeze it, that's fantastic. And and I, I know Michelin star chefs in, in London, for example, they only work with, with frozen seafood products like tuna because it's 
I mean, it's fresher than, than fresh, basically, if you do it right. Right, yeah. Canned fish is having such a moment right now in the U.S. There are dinner yeah, pop-ups yeah. themed around it. There are new companies popping up all the time. I'm writing a book about canned fish. Fantastic, yeah. Lots of books. Um, where do you think all this enthusiasm came from? And what is, you know, people have always eaten canned fish all over the world. But, I mean, not yeah. always, but for a, a several hundred years now. So what do you think is changing people's minds about it or what's shifting? Well, I think it has several angles. In the first place, we are more informed. So um, canned fish, it's often, well, it's it's always wild fish, more or less. It's often oily fish. So it's all the pelagic fish, right? Sardines, anchovies, um, mackerel. Um, so really healthy, really nutritious. No additives. You can keep it in your pantry for like four or five years except the anchovies right that's more the practical side of it but also i think the beautiness of a can um i mean the the designs what you often see is it's amazing to see it so it became and and i think also because it's often things what which are like the opposite of trending right so it's it's really far then then suddenly something happens a real magic that 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 this becomes interesting and yeah it's it, I, I don't know exactly but I think it's it's a mix of the beautiness the flavors the easiness to cook with because it's really quick to cook it's cooked for you already so it's it's more like a thing combining with some textures and colors and acidity some salt some uh, saltiness I mean and and yeah you can create like a thousand meals as with fresh fish but in a different way with a different mindset I think one of the obstacles in the U.S. about buying sustainable seafood is that there's so much, there's so little transparency about sourcing. And often when you go to the grocery store or the fish market, um, even like the labels that show how a fish was caught or where it was caught, um, those like can be wildly inaccurate. Do you think there's like a little bit of a difference when you're buying a product in a can? Like, is it easier to to recognize back to the oh the definitely source. yeah so what we need to realize is like 80 percent of our oceans or more are fished to the limit or overfished so and what what has happened the last 40 50 years is it became a big mystery so we cannot recognize until f- we couldn't recognize until five ten years ago where the fish has been caught you have this fao areas in the world these are so large that it doesn't say anything except from that one of the seven seas. But since we are more aware of this sustainability, um, it's the pecked fish which is more, uh, which you can more recognize if it's sustainable or not. So for example, in the US with canned tuna, we estimate over 90% of the tuna is non-sustainable. But there is a movement where you see there are cans MSC certified, which is the blue eco label. Uh, which I really believe is the one and only eco-label for wild fish. And tuna is called by pollen line, but also with sardines and anchovies. Um, it's mentioned on the pack, so you can make that easy choice. And with this choice, you contribute to, well, better oceans, not only for today, but also for the future. Yeah. When you started your own canned fish company, um, how did that change how you shop for canned fish? And did it illuminate a lot of just like what's on the label, on the tin that you buy at the grocery store? So what you're asking is if it changed my... Yeah, I mean, did you learn anything that you didn't already know about just like the process of fishing, how things oh, are yeah. labeled, um, 
yeah, well, how to shop for what's sustainable. Yeah, well, not only from a sustainable perspective, but also from a quality perspective. There is there actually started. So one of the moments I re- uh, remember was in Brittany, in, in France, where I entered a factory, and um, this uh, this owner, this lady, gave me like a, a beautiful can of sardines, and I, uh, which I took home, and she's and I said, well, thank you, I'm going to enjoy it tonight. She said, no, 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 it's impossible. You need to keep it for another three years, and you turn it around every six months. Which I thought, okay, but this is also different. I mean, there are different factories, different qualities. It's, it's, it's. I mean, this really goes from zero to hundred. So, that's where it started, and um, it's a really natural product. And but, but to come back to your question on sustainability, is that until ten, five, ten years ago, there was no awareness, especially not in the countries where fish is tinned, like Spain or uh, Portugal, and then it came up. So what I learned is that there was, a, yeah, again, a lot of mystery and, and unawareness of, of what was going on, and it was just like a factory process to can as, mu- as much fish as possible. It's funny that you bring up the, the aging, the can yeah. of sardines. It's like with wine, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. There are people who have these actual like collections of vintage sardines, and there are certain canneries in France and Spain and Portugal maybe that actually label the vintage yeah. with the hopes that you might enjoy it a few years from when the fish were caught when they've sort of like soaked up some of that beautiful yeah, olive matured. oil flavor, yeah. yeah, and matured in the can. Yeah, no, true, and and uh, it's it's determined by law that you can keep this can for at, at most four or five years. But I know people in France and Portugal they have cans of twenty years old, and it only becomes better. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's also there's this whole community actually on YouTube, and I think like some blogs as well that are all about opening really old cans. Like they find cans oh, wow. maybe from the 60s or 70s on eBay and open them. And it's like always a little bit scary. <laughs> I wouldn't really recommend that to listeners at home, but it's it's interesting to see how a fish yeah. can stay actually intact yeah, in a can for that long. Yeah, and and I mean, fresh fish, frozen fish, oh, yeah, no, fresh fish, obviously, you, can, you need to consume it in a few days. Frozen fish within two years, but yet the canned fish is a great thing. Yeah, well, fresh fish. There's there's another great thing. What is happening right now in Europe, influenced by George Nyland from from Sydney, is that we dry edge, right? We dry edge fish. So actually, what he is saying, all the fish taste the same after a day, but after thirty days, it all tastes different. You really get that taste. So yeah, new movements. New movements in seafood, really well. Yeah. Yeah, things are changing, and Josh Nyland, of course, you know his theory is that too much of our fish is processed with water. Oh, yeah. But once you actually just dry age and don't soak it in ice and water, there's this opportunity for the meat to sort of mature yeah. and yeah. take on new flavors. Well, and also a great thing based on his philosophy, if we um, connect it to the subject we're talking about now, tinned fish, is what I love about his philosophy too is using the whole fish, right, from, from nose to tail. And often when you buy, like, for example, a can of sardines, um, you just eat the bones with it, right? Because they got softened in the can, so it's really nutritious and healthy and gives this little bite. So um, that's another angle of sustainability that we should use more of the fish itself. I remember when I was working in Paris, I mean, we're so happy when we had a yield on a fish of 50%. Imagine if we will follow his philosophy, which is 90%, but let's say 70%, what it means for 
fish consumption in the world and sustainability. So many different positive movements towards a better future. Yeah, that reminds me, I have been really into cooking whole fish lately, like in the last year or so, just buying a whole intact fish, roasting it, pan frying it, grilling it. What's your favorite way to cook a whole fish? In salt crust. Oh, yeah, it's that's great. That's my favorite. Because all, well, that's my favorite, but so actually what you create is an oven in the oven uh, and all the juices, all the flavors, everything stay intact and you ca- it can, can't go, ro- go wrong because it cannot dry out because of this salt crust. So yeah, that's my favorite. That will be my Christmas main meal. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to mess up too, even if you're oh, like juggling other no, dishes true. Yeah. on the And side. it's so easy to prep. I mean, it's just mixing some salt with some, well, lukewater. Yeah. Maybe some egg whites and it's done. You mentioned earlier sort of the outsized um, problem with tuna fishing. And tuna, canned tuna, of course, is one of the proteins that Americans love to eat the most and one of the seafoods that we eat the most of. Um, I'm wondering just sort of is there like a threat with, with writing about any one species of fish? Is there a concern that it will be overfished or overpopularized? You mean in terms of tuna? Yeah, and in terms yeah. of writing well, about any one particular fish, is that something you struggled well, you with know, when you were writing this book at all? Well, tuna is a big subject. If you would ask in Europe, but it won't, won't be that different here. If you think of the first species, you, it comes up in your mind when you ask someone uh, of a non-sustainable species. Everyone would mention tuna, and... Um, because of the, the Japanese influence and ma- many other Asian influences mainly, we consume more and more tuna fresh. But the thing is with canned tuna, and it's what you say, it's the most consumed fish product in the U.S. Um, there are two species, which are albacore and skipjack, so the light tuna, how you call it here. Um, so with skipjack tuna, it goes quite well in terms of population, so fish stocks. Albacore it depends where you fish it. Um, the positive thing about skipjack too is it's quite low in mercury, so that's a good thing. Um, but there is another subject around sustainability. It's not just the marine biology, but it's also the social economical part of it. So um, most of the fish we consume in the world is already fished in or around developing countries. So we also need to take care of these local communities. And skipjack is what being, is being caught well at these communities, in, uh, mainly in Asia. Um, so, um, yeah, it's something we need to take care of. They they catch their tuna with pole and line, which is a great thing. So things to support. But in terms of species, we need to be very careful with bluefin tuna, which is not ending up in, in a can. But, yeah, most of the stocks are unsustainable. Um, yellowfin tuna, it really depends where it comes from. Um, albacore tuna, same. Skipjack is quite though. Yeah, so there are difficulties with tuna, but with other species too. But the good thing about... America is that you have a lot of sustainable certified fisheries around the coast, around the country, also in Canada. So, yeah, there is a, you can make a good choice. Yeah. Veggies and Fish is your latest book, one of many books about cooking with fish. What's your dream cookbook to write? What's your next uh, big project, do you think? Not sure yet. So, due to the pandemic, I've been able to travel. So, this is my tri- first trip again to the U.S., 
but I cannot wait to travel again towards these uh, these amazing fisheries again. So it's often when when being with these fishing communities, I got inspired to ride again and to cook again. So I cannot wait to travel. So I don't have like a fixed plan for the next book, but I'm sure that it will come up soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on the Taste Podcast, Bart. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Deepak. You've written extensively about how the foods we eat connect to our spiritual well-being. How does the act of cooking fit into this? Is cooking important to you? Cooking done consciously influences even the metabolism of food. This is what we learn from ancient wisdom traditions, that the consciousness of the of the chef influences the taste of the food and also how it's metabolized and also the consciousness of the person who's consuming the food. So if you're agitated, no matter how good the food is, it'll go into a toxic metabolic pathway because of cortisol and adrenaline going up in your bloodstream. On the other hand, if you eat consciously and you cook consciously, then you make other peptides in your brain that metabolize the food into a different metabolic pathway. And that influences our state of physical well-being, but also our emotional well-being, also our self-awareness. And self-awareness is the key to spiritual well-being. So the answer is yes. What's something that you really enjoy cooking and that you feel really good about cooking? I've enjoyed cooking an Indian dish called khichari, which is uh, a combination of rice, various, ne- which is a combination of rice and various varieties of lentils and maximum diversity of plant-based foods. Are there any chefs or restaurants that really come to mind when you think about this sort of mindful, thoughtful way of cooking? Are there restaurants that you enjoy eating at because you know that the chef approaches food this way? John George is one of my favorite chefs. Um, He's very interested in the consciousness of food. He is very diverse in his uh, expressions of food, every, everything from Italian, Greek, European, Mediterranean food to Eastern food to varieties of foods from Indonesia and the islands. I have many other favorite chefs as well. Uh, one that comes to mind, his last name is Khanna, and he's an Indian chef. Um, both of them have restaurants um, across the world. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants in New York is ABC Kitchen, ABC V, and Cocina, all John George's restaurants. A variety of foods with maximum diversity for all kinds of tastes. What's your approach to eating while traveling? Because you must travel a lot for the work that you do. And to me, you know, eating can be one of the great joys of traveling, but it can also be this experience where. I'm tired or I'm jet-lagged, and I'm just eating the first bag of chips that I see. 
As I travel, I'm very conscious of uh, maintaining my health and my biological rhythms and correcting uh, what we call jet lag as soon as possible. So I do not eat on airplanes and I consume a lot of um, water and vegetable juices while I'm traveling. When I go to a foreign place, I always find the right restaurants. These days, it's very easy to find the right restaurants if you want a holistic, uh, healthy diet. And if you don't feel like going to a restaurant these days, there are many apps that you can use to order healthy food no matter where you are. What is, uh, what's an example of one of these apps that people should well, look I've been for? using Uber Eats uh, uh, and looking up healthy food outlets. Um, also, Postmates is another app that I've been using, especially when I travel within the United States anyway. How connected are the concepts of cooking and eating intentionally and climate change to you? Is there sort of a particular approach to eating that's both better for our health as people, but also better for the climate? Right now, I would say the number one culprit in climate change is manufactured food. Manufactured food uses pesticides, uses chemicals, uses steroids, uh, frequently is genetically modified, and destroys the ecosystem. I personally believe that uh, it's also inhumane to animals that are brought up in factories. And so it has many consequences. Uh, if we shift to a plant-based diet, uh, predominantly a plant-based diet with maximum diversity, and refrain from uh, putting pesticides and chemicals into our food, not only with our personal biology be more sustainable, but our personal biology is part of a bigger ecosystem, which we call the biosphere. So in the deeper reality, the trees are our lungs. The waters and oceans are our circulation. The air is our breath. Uh, so we have a personal body and we have a universal body. They're equally ours. If you put a rabbit in, uh, or any mammal or any animal in a vacuum, it dies. If you put a plant in the same vacuum, it dies. If you put the plant and the animal together, they both thrive and nourish each other. So life is interdependent, and the more we destroy life through artificial means, the more we affect our own biological sustainability, which affects the sustainability of our planet. Ideal way to reverse um, climate change would be to change our methodologies for agriculture, to maximize natural foods, organic foods, uh, to have farm-to-table delivery systems, to also focus on mindful eating, but also focus on the idea that uh, the right agricultural practices uh, will sustain both our biology and the biosphere and could reverse, in fact, climate change. If we revise the way we eat and consume food, but also create food, 
And along with that, we look for alternative sources of energy, which is being done. Um, we have a very big uh, opportunity to actually reverse climate change. As someone who's been writing and speaking really for decades about the connection between uh, the mind, body, and spirit, how all of these forms of health are connected, what do you make of sort of the rise of people talking about wellness and self-care? Is it purely a good thing because people are, it's in the conversation and it's in people's vocabularies? Or is there sort of a negative side to that? Because I think there's kind of a little bit of an industrial complex around wellness and self-care now. What do you think of that? Well, the industrial aspects of self-care are okay to me. I mean, they're better than the industrial aspects of pharmaceuticals and drugs and pornography and weapons and war, uh, which are huge industries. So to have an industry around self-care is actually a bonanza in my opinion. On the other hand, self-care goes beyond the ego self. It goes to the deeper self where we are all interconnected and interdependent, in fact, inseparable. So the artificial division between mind, body, spirit, and environment is just that. It's artificial. Um, The deeper reality is one of awareness which modifies itself into the experience of mind, body, and what we call the physical world. So I would actually not use words like self-care. I would say self-awareness is the key to transformation, health, well-being, abundance, and even sustainability, and ultimately to a more peaceful, sustainable, joyful, healthier world. In American culture, there's sort of an, an obsession this time of year around holiday eating, and we sort of celebrate by excess and by lots and lots of food. Do you think this is a misguided way of celebrating by just piling as much food as possible onto the table? The current ways of celebration during holiday season are, of course, a product of uh, of media, advertising, and consumerism. Uh, We call ourselves consumers, which is an ugly word to describe stardust beings with self-awareness. And we've been bamboozled to think that uh, unhealthy eating practices uh, will make us feel joyful. In fact, they only give us hangovers and heart attacks. I look at the holidays as an opportunity to reinvent the body and resurrect the soul and repair relationships. But I guess I'm in the minority. Is there anything that you personally like to cook or eat when you're feeling celebratory? Or is food and celebration just completely separate to you? Food and celebration always go together. The healthiest people in the world are those who eat um, mindfully and with uh, social interaction and with celebration. Um, Mediterranean peoples have done that traditionally. And so celebration and food go together. And joy comes with that as well, provided you eat the right things with the right people and consciously. You've, of course, written dozens of books, including cookbooks. 
But do you have another cookbook up your sleeve, or is there a dream cookbook that you would write? I'm working right now with uh, nutritional psychiatrists uh, because we know that 80% of the serotonin, the happy hormone in the body, comes from the gut. And by changing our diet uh, to a diet of maximum diversity of plant-based foods, we can actually change 99% of the genetic information in the body and reinvent our bodies, but also create a more joyful experience and happier experience emotionally and spiritually. Whether that will translate into a book in the future or not, I'm not sure. Thank you so much for joining us on the Taste Podcast, Deepak. Thank you very much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.